If we make the assumption that something will be more expensive in the future, and we're very close to that right now, we're very close to the point right now where we're operating as a as a uh, as a population and a and a GDP that's driven primarily by consumers buying things. We're close to the psychology right now that prices will be higher in the future, so you better buy it now. Now contrast that with a few years ago. There was an assumption a few years ago, I'll wait till that goes on sale and buy it at a lower price. And we had stubbornly, extremely low inflation, even below zero inflation where prices were coming down, which can be dangerous. Now we're close to reversing our psychology and it's the Federal Reserve's job to stop us from getting in the mood of you better buy it right now and buy it with borrowed money because the price will go up in the future. And they do that at least partially by, by raising interest rates. If you raise interest rates and you look at the interest on a loan to buy something right now, you'll probably have second thoughts about it. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill up the wall with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome back to another exciting second hour of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. Together we are bald, and I know I'm redisclosing that to you. I think it's rather important that you be aware of this horrible situation. Um, and we have uh, returned for a second hour. We, we didn't leave. It's amazing. We have two questions waiting from us from last hour. Um, and uh, the, the first one from Alan is, uh, I'll just read it out. Jeff, Jake, the only place I heard about I-bonds was your show and Bill O'Reilly's radio show during his Smart Life segment. We have had several thousand dollars in savings to pay property tax and have funds for emergencies, home maintenance, repair, and vacation. As long as I can remember, we've had this. As long as I can remember, it really didn't matter where these savings were. Buying a savings to get 0.02% interest just wasn't worth it. We moved some savings to I-bonds in October. I-bonds are still paying 6.89%. My credit union has money markets for 4.35%. Understanding that the money is unavailable for a year, these I-bonds like, seem like a great deal for a savings product. Could you please comment further on this product? We're thinking we should gradually move all of our savings to I-bonds. Well, you want to answer that? Sure. I, that I'm is so a complicated. Tempted. <laughs> it's, well, you can if you want to. No, go ahead. I'm not going to stop you. I, I, I just did it. Though. You get to answer this one. Now, let me answer it first, though. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> it's all you. It's a complicated answer to the question. It seems like a simple thing that if you can get, if you're getting 6.89% on I-bonds, and the money market's paying 4.35, you should move to I-bonds. And it's not that easy. First off, if you've got to hold them for a year. Okay, you can get away with that. But if it's your emergency fund, you can't get to it for a year. The second thing that's important to recognize is I-bonds are paying such a high interest rate right now because the lagging inflation number is so high. And I say lagging. Every is it every six months? I think every six months they reset these things. Right. It's every quarter, or every six months. It's every, every six, six months. months. And they're going to look back six months out, and they're going to see what it's paying, what the what the inflation rate has been. And in case you haven't noticed, the inflation rates are going down. We still have high inflation, 
But with each inflation report, it's going down. Right now, month-to-month inflation is running about 36 to 3.8% a year. Now, is it going to, there's no way of assuring ourselves it will continue to stay that way, but it sure looks like it's going to be that way. And if you listened earlier, a year out from the burst of inflation, we're probably going to see inflation numbers drop to 3%, possibly below. Now, I don't know the precise how they'll precisely figure the I-bond trailing interest rate, but at that point, I-bonds, which incidentally pay practically no underlying interest at this point in history, they're only adjusting for inflation, will only be paying about 3%. You just said that you can go to the credit union and get uh, 4.35. At that point, you will be locked into something for a year as your credit union and, for that matter, money market mutual funds will likely be still raising their interest rates because the Fed is going to keep raising interest rates, short-term rates, until they get well above inflation in order to kill inflation. Right now, we still have negative real interest rates. You can, The Fed will loan you money for less than trailing interest right now. Well, if not you, but a bank. And as a result, we have negative interest rates. The Fed, the normal situation and the, the situation the Fed wants to get to is to get positive interest rates back into the system, which means... There's a pretty fair chance that six months from now, when they reset the bond looking back, you'll be at break-even or below what you'd get in a money market fund. But you're locked in for a year, and this is not going to make you really, really happy at that point. Um, the, the important thing to recognize is that money market funds in general, there's no guarantee that every bank and every credit union will keep up with the short-term rates, but in general, money market funds reflect current interest r- short-term interest rates. The I-bonds have a lag of almost a year in in what they pay because they reset it at six months and then they hold it for six months. So basically, there's something approaching a one-year lag in I-bonds when the interest rates are given you. If short-term rates go above the one-year lagged interest rates, you'll get more interest on your money market fund than you will on your I-bond, but the money market fund won't involve a lock-in. Last but not least, if you liquidate that I-bond before five years, you lose six months interest. So calculating one, all one that One quarter. In, one quarter. I'm interest. sorry, you use a quarter. You lose a quarter interest. Calculating all that in, until you're you, reaching until you held it point, I think. for five years. Yeah, and so basically yeah. going over to your I-bonds with some of your savings, as long as you're put, not putting yourself at risk, makes sense. Um, there are, you know, you're limited to $10,000 per person uh per year. You can set up an LLC to do it, but you probably should only set up the LLC if you've got something that you're doing with the LLC besides <laughs> buying I-bonds. Um, another way to do it is you can take your entire, um, if you get a refund from the IRS for putting your, your for paying taxes, uh, you can put the entire amount of your refund toward an I-bond purchase. Uh, even if that's a huge amount of money, I think the maximum is five thousand. It's ten thousand five hundred per person, even with a refund. I read yesterday. I may be incorrect. Uh, you can you can look that up that, again. That is that is you can the ten thousand five hundred may be the new twenty twenty three rule, but um, you please look up tax refund I bonds because you can put significantly more into I bonds with a refund. Um, so. The other question we've got is from Stephen, um, and his subject line is, please comment on the article's impending debt crisis. Are we in the roaring 20s again? 
and he sent an article from Yahoo Finance on uh, Nouriel Roubini, who says a severe recession will cause stocks to drop 25% and warns zombie comp- companies are in danger. Um, did you want to say something? Yeah, it is. The Treasury Direct says the maximum is $5,000 in paper I-bonds you can buy when you file federal tax forms. Okay. And so it's 10500 max, even uh, with refund. Now, ten thousand by yourself, an additional five thousand on top of that, so fifteen thousand. Right, not right. 10, if you get a five thousand, at least a five thousand refund, would you? Okay. Um, so uh, the so you can put in fifteen thousand uh, dollars if if uh, so you got five thousand from that. If you've overpaid your taxes five thousand dollars this year, you can and you get it back next year when they get around to returning it to you. You can buy I bonds with that five thousand dollars. Right. Correct. And then you can put 10000 in for yourself on top. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the article that was sent from Nouriel Roubini, let me, let me give a quick background on who he is. Number one, he's an incredibly uh, intelligent person, and he has been correct in forecasting uh, at least one recession, the Great Recession. He said he re- released a book right beforehand and said, uh, we, we've got bad things happening. Here's the problem. All of his books that he's ever released say exactly that, that things are about to be really, really bad. And he got it right one time. Well, how many books has he done? Um, he's got uh, the, uh, just a quick sampling off of Amazon. He's got about five. They're all in the same mode. To give a, a simple response... In a severe recession, you, it's usually led by a bear market of at least a 25% drop in the market. Well, we had a 20 plus percent. We had about a 25% drop <laughs> in, the bear, in, in the market in our last bear market. We've got some recovery since then. He's speaking in pretty vague terms terms, saying things like, in a short and shallow recession, typically from peak to trough, the S&P 500 falls around 30%. That's roughly correct. And it's roughly what we've just experienced. Very close to what we've just done. Um, So he says, so even if we have a mild recession, you'll have another 15% leg down. Well, this is a big question. He told this to Bloomberg. From this point in the bear, we've already been Twice, we've touched a, a bottom, which was in the 25% downturn. 26% is where we got. So this is very typical for a forecast for a mild recession. He's correct in that. Um, what he's saying is that we need to have a 30% drop from where we are or a 15% drop from where we are. We may have already experienced it. So he's being very vague there. Uh, and he says... Um, not as severe as the global financial crisis, you'd have another 25% downturn for that one to get down to 50% down. Um, so what are we talking about here? His big thing that he has said repeatedly is the subject of stagflation. And he says the mother of all stagflationary debt crises can be postponed but not avoided. Um, and the article that was sent in here has quotes from him from multiple different interviews, which makes it difficult to find the context. Let me give a quick statement on stagflation. Stagflation has got a definition. It means when you have um, high inflation 
and high unemployment. It means people are having trouble finding work across the spectrum, and we have high inflation at the same time. It's what we got in the 1970s and the 1980s at the beginning um, that if you've got really, really high unemployment and really, really high inflation, that's not what we're experiencing today. We have high employment and, and relatively high inflation, though it's coming down off of its peak. So Rubini is often confused with Malachi, uh, Nouriel Maliki, uh, who is actually a forward-thinking economist that's making decisions ba based on not just forecasting bad things all the time. Um, he's the one that wrote The Black Swan, and he says, these are the types of risks you should be aware of, where Rubini is constantly saying, we're about to have a recession and it's going to be bad. So, if, if you have a forecaster that's always forecasting rain, they're going to get it right sometimes. And then once they do, people point at their successes and say, look, he forecast rain and it rained. Um, Rubini is talking about some issues that were important in 2010, less important now. The, the debt crisis that he's talking about is just about non-existent in the United States. It's bad in China right now. And the global financial crisis, we had a massive issue with bad debt. We're not seeing that today, apart from places like crypto exchanges, which are extremely unregulated. If you look at the banks right now and the amount of cash that's on deposit on the banks to back up the debt, you've got debt that's equal to about 20% of deposits. When you look at, as a, as a different example, where many of the crypto exchanges are saying, hey, we're going to show you that we're backing up our deposits with our, our loans with these deposits. It's like dollar for dollar. They have 100% collateral for 100% of the loan, which by the way, is extremely risky. That is not a good situation. That means any drop in the value of the crypto means that they don't have collateral to back their loan anymore. If you're exactly $1 for every dollar that you have loaned out, that's not a good ratio. It's a really bad ratio. They're putting out those ratios to calm the public. I look at that and say that is the minimum requirement for healthy investments going forward. And that's when margin calls start happening. Um, so do you want to take this for the rest of the, of the subject? The next, I think I hit it. For a little bit, I'll take that. I think Nouriel Roubini makes money by being Dr. Doom, and that's why he's called Dr. Doom. So I wouldn't pay a lot of attention to Nouriel Roubini. He's, it's kind of like there was a guy whose name I can't remember off the top of my head, and that's probably good, who uh, was weird to the extreme, who wrote that there was a huge depression coming and he published a book in 1987, which had very low sales because he got his information basically from looking at bones uh, arranged in a circle with skulls. Um, but the 1987 stock market crash occurred shortly after his book was published, and he became extremely popular and wound up on all the talk shows and ended up being interviewed by anybody and everybody for years thereafter. Um, there have been a series of these through the years of people who either write about great, the great boom ahead or the bus that's going to do this or whatever. And if you take a look at the sources of their data, 
including with Dr. Doom, uh, you find out that they're basically writing about the same thing over and over again. And as, as once I was, once I was accused of this, they are, they are a legend in their own mind. And, uh, now, they're not they they don't have any basis for it they just continually to it's it's the old story of even a stopped well not with a digital clock but with an analog <laughs> clock a stopped clock is right twice a day yeah um now the question is do we have an impending debt crisis is this the roaring 20s again and the answer to that after all of what we just said is maybe um and by maybe we're looking at, are we in the roaring 20s again? Yes, but it's a different 20s and we're roaring for different reasons. We're likely to have some recessionary periods during the 20s, but it is also likely that we'll hit another debt crisis level in about a decade, maybe a little less. Why is that likely? Well, because they happen about every 20 years or so. And that would put us on point to do it again. We tend to repeat these things. So if you just keep writing about it, it should happen again. Um, right now, the Federal Reserve has, is running stress tests that are just at the most extreme for banks because the global financial crisis, the Great Recession, these things are big names. And we're still reeling from the shock of it even 14 years later. Um, go ahead. There's an interesting thing going on in Great Britain right now, the, the street, which is the, when they say the street or the city, I'm sorry, the city in London is the equivalent of saying Wall Street in the United States. Right. Because London, the city, is a financial center, and, and they refer to the city. Um, the, the lobbyists and companies from the city are heavily lobbying parliament right now to relax some of the laws that were put in place to prevent another 2007 through 9 collapse like we saw uh in the great recession a, a bank uh finance recession uh severe recession caused by too much lo loaning of money and they say it's making and then the interesting argument they're making they're making is that it is making the city uncompetitive on a global basis the relaxation of laws that led to the financial to the banking crisis that we call the great recession now came as a result direct result of wall street what we call wall yeah. street Lobbying Congress saying that the restrictive laws that were put in place to prevent another Great Depression were making Wall Street uncompetitive on a global basis. Right. The same argument is being brought forward. And goodness gracious, it hasn't been that long, folks, since, I mean, so, yeah. about 20 years ago, the lobbying was to relax the, uh, the severe restrictions that are put on the investment banks because it is making them non-competitive. And that argument is beginning to resurface. Right. And so what we look at there is that we have a cycle and we tend to skip. Each cycle tends to be a different disaster than the one before. But it can be a crisis that we already had maybe two or three cycles ago. Uh, and that's just a normal way that we go about this. I mean, we, you can, I could start throwing out dates and saying this one was like that one and how they repeat. The reality is that we tend to repeat the crisis that we've forgotten, not the one that we're still worried about. And as long as Rubini's out there screaming about we're going to have another global financial crisis, and as long as a lot of people are still afraid of it, we're probably not going to have a repeat of it.
It's when we stop being afraid of it and we convince that we got enough votes to loosen the restrictions because that'll never happen again. That was too long ago. That's when we repeat it. We're not there yet. And that's one of those things. We're not universal optimists, nor are we universal pessimists. Right now, we're optimists because the market's down. The economy is still going strongly. We're likely to have a recession and we're optimists. When things are booming, 2019, 2021, we're a bit more pessimistic. Uh, and that's because there's a balance in all of these things. And, you know, we call it reversion to the mean. But really what it is, is that you cannot have boom times forever. And you cannot have bust times forever. There's some degree of average that actually takes place in the day-to-day lives when you combine that many people's lives together. Uh, new businesses get made, and some of them are actually profitable. And those that are profitable grow and get larger and become successful. Some businesses fail. Sometimes they fail all at once because of something that happens to them. Those decisions that get made there are being made in human minds. We can, we can take a step back from all of the technical numbers of how much growth we have or, uh, or things along those lines and come back to decision-making is what leads to downturns and decision-making is what leads to upturns. And we, we have a groupthink mentality. You can see it really well in, in the crypto market right now where the group says, hey, nothing can ever hurt us. And as soon as everybody in the group believes it, that's when the hurt occurs. As long as you have a significant portion of the group afraid of what might happen next, we take precautions. As soon as everyone agrees, no, that can never happen, that's, that's when it does. And, and that's if you're a parent, you know this already. As soon as you think, hey, my kid's got this whole thing, he's not falling down on the bike anymore, that's when the next bike accident happens. It's purely psychological, but that's how our decisions get made. Uh, and and that's, that's the reality of it, um, kind of as an answer there. Okay. Well, here's what's going on that is driving the headlines in the economic news. Uh, it's driving the pundits crazy. It's, uh, it's something that there is hyper-focus on in the media with good cause, but it's almost to the exclusion of everything else. The United States economy is turning along very nicely. Uh, it is uh, it is creating more jobs and we have people to work, which means wages go up. And if you've listened to any politicians over the last 20 years, you'll know that they're in favor of more jobs and higher pay. Well, we have more jobs and higher pay. We got what we wished for. The problem, and, and of course, that was generated by the fact that the prices for things went up, which made things more profitable for companies to do, either services or goods. And as they had more profitability in doing things, they did more things to make more profits, which is what companies do. And that's the nature of such things. The problem we had was there was too much, there was a a supply shortage. Why do we have a supply shortage? Well, twofold. One, we had this little disease that swamped around for a while. Just a little thing. And And you'd think, well, that's over with now. No, it's over with here, but it's not over with in China. And China happens to be the principal supplier to the entire world of stuff. Now, economists don't call it stuff. We do. We call it stuff. We're economists. We're allowed. Only a a very small fraction of economists with bald heads and beards 
call it call stuff. It stuff. Yes, we the use technical terms. World, the rest, and particularly in academics, they call it goods. Goods or services. Yes. You either have goods or services, which if they're opposite each other should mean services are bad. But And I've been in some restaurants where that's definitely true. Uh, and we call um, it stuff and doings. Stuff and doing, yeah. Goods and services. Yeah. 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 Things people do versus stuff you buy. Yeah. And that's, that's services and goods. Anyway, so what happens is when there's a shortage of stuff, we and we have money to spend price of the stuff goes up. The law of supply and demand is pretty immutable. Whenever there's a shortage of something and people want to, and there's a higher demand than there is supply, then the price goes up. Now, when there's a higher supply than there is demand, the price goes down. Uh, and, and the supply and the demand both change. Well, we have... And, and we those, have those simple statements that you just said could spend your entire career working on and still not understand them completely. Sure. So it's very, very simple statement. Yeah, go ahead. Well, the, 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 the problem is the supply has sort of, in many cases, normalized. It hasn't completely normalized yet, though, because China is still going through COVID uh, spasms where they're shutting down their economy in various places. They're, they very well may be in a recession. We don't get a lot of good information out of China. Um, they're definitely hurting economically. They're having riots. They're having protests. They're having which is which is really unusual in China because of their COVID issues. Um, so the supply is still a little weak there. It's extremely weak when it comes to energy and grain coming out of Eastern Europe and Russia because Russia then decided to invade Ukraine and the end result, without regard to anything, a lot of things were done by a lot of people. But the bottom line to it is. There is significantly less oil in the world uh, available to be burned and used for various things. And there's a shortage of food in the world because both Ukraine and Russia supply a lot of food and they're having to do some weird thing to get the food out now. So we got a supply shortage, which means prices went up. Okay, cool. That by itself, once it normalized, would tend to go away, we think. That's what the mathematics say and it's certainly true. Here's the problem. In order to get people to fill those all that new stuff doing and all those new things being sold and made here in the United States, we had to hire more people. And we had a large pool of unemployed people as this started because of the pandemic. But a lot of those people are, didn't come back to work. For, now there's some studies that have come out that say that one of the main reasons they didn't come back to work is because a very significant part of the, of the people who left the so-called left the workforce have said, we're not working in crowds of people anymore because we're scared of getting infected with something. A lot of those people were sick. And some of those people were sick with the flu, with COVID multiple times, and with what's the other thing, SD something, the virus that's going around? Uh, RSV. RSV, which the adults normally get, don't get, but they've been getting. So people are scared of getting sick, so they tend to not come to work. And some of them are working from home, and some of them said, I'm just not going to work anymore, particularly older folks like me, although I, do, I still go to work. So what does all that boil down to? We have a labor shortage in the United States, and there's a shortage, and there's, which is the supply of labor. And then there's demand, which is employers need to hire people to do stuff do stuff that if stuff is stuff okay to do things to provide services to do the things that people do when they go to work and there's the problem the price goes up wages then start up and here's what the and wages have been rising somewhere between five and seven percent a year for a couple of years now 
Here's the problem. As wages go up, there's more money to spend on buying things that are already in short supply, on buying services that are already in short supply, so the prices will go up further. And if the prices go up further, then the people who are working are going to demand more money, just like the railroad workers just did. They demanded a significant increase in wages every year. The At the New York Times, the entire staff just quit. Not quit, but went on strike because they want five. They want a fifteen percent raise. Why do they want a fifteen percent raise? Because inflation has gone up the past few years, and this is what the Federal Reserve is fighting hard. And the fight is going to be painful for everybody to some degree. The Federal Reserve is working hard to avoid something called a wage price spiral. Wages go up, which means companies need to charge more for things. People have more money to spend buying the things, so the prices go up because there's more demand than there is supply which means that inflation continues, which means wages go up, which means prices go up, which means wages go up. And that's what we had in the late 70s and early 80s. And it was not a pretty picture. So the Federal Reserve is doing what it's doing, which is raising interest rates, which is about all it can do, and sucking money out of the economy to make money in short supply if it can. It's being very unsuccessful so far. To reduce the price rises before they become entrenched in our psychological beings. If we make the assumption that something will be more expensive in the future, and we're very close to that right now, we're very close to the point right now where we're operating as a, as a, uh, as a population and a, and a GDP that's driven primarily by consumers buying things. We're close to the psychology right now that prices will be higher in the future, so you better buy it now. Now, contrast that with a few years ago. There was an assumption a few years ago, I'll wait till that goes on sale and buy it at a lower price. And we had stubbornly, extremely low inflation, even below zero inflation where prices were coming down, which can be dangerous. Now we're close to reversing our psychology and it's the Federal Reserve's job to stop us from getting in the mood of you better buy it right now and buy it with borrowed money because the price will go up in the future. And they do that at least partially by, by raising interest rates. If you raise interest rates and you look at the interest on a loan to buy something right now, you'll probably have second thoughts about it. So that's what's going on in the economy right now. That is the big thing going on. There's a lot of other things going on, a lot of moving parts in our economy. But that's the big picture that everybody's focused on in the economics world. And it is the thing that's driving the train. The concern is the Federal Reserve will keep raising rates too far and we will slide into recession. And that is the big debate, whether we'll have a recession or not. And we're about out of time. This is The Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, this is The Personal Wealth Coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guess from The Personal Wealth Coach being our title. The Personal Wealth Coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is and it's less disclosureable it takes less time to do if it's just the same name so we've been doing this program here uh on this in, on this station 1400 
AM in Temple since 1996. We've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also <laughs> have not ever paid for it. So we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational, and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think right. uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally and portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at two, five, four, nine, four, seven, 11, 11. You can reach that line tool free at one, eight hundred nine, one, four, seven, five, two, six. That's eight hundred nine, fourteen plan. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.